My name is Tom. I uh, serve here alongside Vic and Keith as pastor, and it is my honor to be the preaching elder. And we now find ourselves <coughs> in Mark chapter 14, verse 32. We were on a chronological work through of the final week of Jesus' earthly life before his death, and we, we saw in the last uh, chronological event was the Passover meal, the very final Passover meal that would ever be under the, the old dispensation or epoch or era in the old covenant, that final Passover night was when Jesus took his disciples and had that meal with them and then gave it its true fulfillment and pointed it and in fact transformed the meal to become what we now have, the king's meal or the Lord's supper, what we call communion. He showed them what it meant truly that his, this covenant is now in his blood. This wine symbolizes that blood. This body is broken just like, this bread is broken just like my body is broken for you as a sacrifice. And, and he gives that gift to the church to be an ongoing act of remembrance whenever we partake of it. We studied that topically and a little bit theologically last week. And now we get to uh, verse 32, which tells us the events that transpired after Jesus had enjoyed that uh, 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 Lord's Supper with them and sung some hymns with his, with his disciples. Verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here. And watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. We will pick up from verse 43 next week on the betrayal of the Lord Jesus Christ and his trials. But may God bless this portion of Scripture, his inerrant, powerful, and authoritative word in our midst this morning. What we get a glimpse of here in this, this prayer of the Lord Jesus in Gethsemane is, is as if in the Old Covenant you were able to, for, for a once-off, you were able to just sneak into the, the chambers of the, of the temple and you were able to peer through the, the great thick curtain that separated God's presence from man. That is, that is the kind of significance that we're seeing right now. Us being able to peer into the very relationship that the Son had with the Father. This is such a unique time when Jesus has gone out from the, the Passover meal. He would have walked with his 11 disciples. Judas has already gone away to betray him. Jesus knows what is going to happen. He knows that Judas is going to try and meet him at their secret place in the, the, the Olive Garden. And Jesus goes there. He has to go to where he will be betrayed so that the scriptures must be fulfilled. 
And on his walk down the, down the hill, he would have gotten to the bottom of the valley and stepped over the, the, the rushing river of the lamb's blood of all of the lambs that were being sacrificed in the city, he would run down the Kidron Valley. He would have stepped over it and climbed the mountain together as he walked with his disciples into the garden, into this, this olive grove of olive trees, which there would have also been an, an olive press. It's a, it's a very continual theme in the Bible of, of, of God planting gardens and their finding fruitfulness. And, and Jesus walks into that garden. He leaves eight of his disciples behind, and he takes three of them, his, his close inner three that he so often trusted with, uh, with more responsibility and authority than the others, Peter, James, and John. James and John were, were the brothers. Peter had f- f- uh, formerly been called Simon. He was the loudmouth. He was the leader of the 12. And he left them just a stone's throw away and went further in. Now, what we see him do is he, he confesses to them in these opening verses, he confesses to them what is going on with his heart. He tells them in verse 34, (coughs) he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And then going a little farther, he fell onto the ground and prayed. What we see here is a good picture that Jesus gives to us. And maybe you guys have this. You have some friends that, that, that they can know maybe if things are pretty extreme in your life, their colleagues, their acquaintances, their pals, they can tell if something's going on with you. But then you have those, those inner circles, of course, your spouse, maybe your, 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 your child who is now an adult that you can confide in and walk with. Maybe it's a, a best friend from your childhood or your school age. You, you have those friends that you can confide in, that you can just tell them what is on your heart. And this is what Jesus does. And yet, in Jesus' example, we see that there is nothing more powerful. No matter how many close friends you have in order to be able to open your hearts to, maybe it's a pastor, maybe it's somebody who's helping counsel you through issues, there is nothing that replaces the casting your anxieties onto God because he ultimately and supremely cares for you. And this is what Jesus does. He he tells his friends, I'm about to die Because my brain, my mind, my soul, my heart is tearing at its seams within me. He tells them that. But that should not be enough for us to just just unload onto people around us. He then leaves them behind and goes into the secret place with God himself and pours out his soul, pours out his heart and his grief. First of all, we're going to see today the the horrible meeting of the God-man and vile sin. And then we will see the horrible, uh, the, the, the horrible battle between flesh and spirit as we pray. First of all, the, the horrible meeting between the God-man and vile sin. We, we, we notice here how astonishingly, agonizingly, the Lord felt the weight of the world's sin. We need to realize that with, when it comes to Jesus' life, even though he is the embodiment of love and grace and truth, and even though from him we all receive grace upon grace, let's not get confused that in in Jesus' life and ministry, he was sent to the earth to live under nothing but law. Jesus never, ever, I've even thought about whatever, whatever, whatever mindset you're thinking, what about that? No, it doesn't count. Every moment of Jesus' life, was under law. He never experienced grace if what we mean by grace is unmerited favor. 
Jesus lived under the, the beautiful blessing of God because he had perfectly fulfilled and was fulfilling the heart of God through the law. Jesus loved the law, lived the law, lived perfectly, but he was under the law. Galatians tells us that he was born under the law in order to redeem us who are slaves to the law from its condemnation. We get the grace from Jesus, but that's because he fulfilled the law. This is such a common theme in the New Testament. Don't think that Jesus lived under grace. He wasn't all, all, all that good. God sort of gave him some of that mercy. None of that. Jesus lived under law, and because he was perfect fulfilling the law, he lived under total and utter blessing and intimacy with God. And yet that means that at this moment, this junction, what Jesus has been calling his hour, the hour that is coming, the hour that he has come to earth for, that, that moment that his whole life has been looking towards, and he comes towards that hour where the Father will reckon upon him the guilt of all of his bride. All of the eternal, uh, sorry, the, the historical church from Adam until the very last saint to be saved. Everybody that will be saved and forgiven will be saved and forgiven because Jesus died for their sin. And so, so the world's sin is being trans, uh, 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 transmigrated, it's being imputed, it's being put over into the account of Jesus. So to this moment, as he's, he's waiting that to happen, he's looking forward to when, to when he is going to receive the guilt of sin, though himself not a sinner, so that he can be treated as a sinner responsible for our sin, having never committed any of his own. That moment is weighing upon his soul because he knows. Not only is it going to be horrible suffering, but I'll have the grace of my Lord God and Father to, to sustain me. And he'll be blessing me and shining his face and his countenance upon me. Not so with Jesus. He doesn't have grace. He has law. He, he agreed on that. I will go to the earth. I will live under the law and fulfill it. And then I'll go uh, and receive the condemnation of my people's sin under the law and not have any, any, any recompense, any, 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 any escape from the pain that will come upon me. So Jesus is fully aware that once he's finished praying and the betrayer and the arresters come, in about that moment, God will reckon to him sin and he will withdraw his protecting hand. God will then begin to treat him in humiliation and condemnation in such a way that our sins deserve. Jesus is waiting for that moment. Jesus is aware that in that moment, God will have no grace for me, no mercy for me, because if I get grace, my people get law. But if I get law and I get condemnation and I get cut off and I get afflicted, then my people get grace and love and life everlasting. And so the love of Jesus compelled him to go forwards into this moment and yet it was not without pain. Jesus was agonizing to the point of death. While he has lived his whole life under that blessing, there is a unique moment that Jesus is now going to be experiencing. Great trouble in his soul because of the sense of guilt. So he says to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. Soon it's going to say that he falls on his face in prayer and he begs that God take this cup, this, uh, this, this will, this plan from him so that he doesn't have to go through it. It says in verse 33 that he began to be greatly troubled. 
greatly distressed and troubled. We might think, well, wasn't Jesus' whole life just filled with sorrows and persecution and suffering? And, And yes, in a sense, but as we've said already, every one of those sorrows was experienced with God's brightly shining countenance and, 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 and love upon him. But he is beginning to be distressed in a way he's never been distressed before. He's beginning to, to enter the, the cave of, of being cut off from God. He's beginning a kind of distress that he has never, ever experienced before. And by God's great and powerful triumphant victory over death, he will never experience again. But here he is nearing it. He's going to be bearing our griefs and carrying our sorrows as Isaiah 53 foretold. You know something of what this sin sorrow is like. I I probably don't need to start explaining and pulling apart all the details before each of us can can think of a moment in our life, if you're a Christian, when when your sin has not just just brought about an an unlucky or or, or ugly circumstance that would have been more convenient if it didn't happen, but, but a sorrow in your soul. Maybe it's something that you've done against your spouse. Or or a lie that you told that just kept on building until it came crumbling down. But but before it broke out there, it was was compressing your soul. Maybe it it was a sin that you were continually committing and it was habitual and you couldn't break free from it. And it is something that that simply grounds your soul to dust. David writes in the Psalms a, a prayer about that sort of moment. And he says, all of my bones are rotting. There's not a single cell in my flesh that is healthy. That is what sin can do. I know you've felt that. Well, Jesus entered into our pain in that sense, and yet he was entering into our pain and sorrow in a way we couldn't imagine, never having sinned himself. This is a great mystery of the gospel of what Jesus did for us. The curse of sin and all the the centuries and over the thousands of years that had been piling up, all of God's wrath, that curse of sin was now right before him. It was as if he was was looking now into the path that was going to lead through the valley of death itself. And he was going to go there alone. He was going to go there with no help, no guide, no assistance, just himself as the son of man. We we get this picture in the the, uh, prophecy of Isaiah. When, when he sees this, this great warrior in white clothes and he's just spattered with blood. And, and, and the, the prophet Isaiah asks him, Who, wh- what have you been doing and where did you go? And he said, no one came with me. No one was to my left. No one was to my right. I myself alone have treaded the winepress of the wrath of God on the enemies of God. Jesus himself alone is our salvation. He didn't have the help of Mary, his sinless mother. That's bogus. He didn't have the help of the disciples supporting him along. They betrayed, they, one betrayed, the rest forsook him. They couldn't even stay awake. He went alone into, into being trampled under the wrath of God and by so doing, trampling himself, death and sin and Satan. Jesus is the one sole savior. He is going where no man has gone, where no man could go, where no man would ever go again to bear the sin of many, many people. And it is breaking his human frame. The gospel of Luke actually tells us that at this point, Jesus starts sweating great drops of blood, which, 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 which doctors look at and they say, that that's, that's a condition. Well, it's not so much a condition because a condition is something you have and you live with. This is a state of dying. When, When you're in such anguish and distress 
that, you know, you start, you start sweating. Sometimes you start sweating because you're preaching under hot lights. Sometimes you start sweating just because you're anxious, you're nervous, you're excited, something like that. You, you sweat. Well, there is, a, there is a level of anxiety that humans can go through. It's not just the heart pounding. It's not just shaking hands and weak knees and, and, and breathlessness, but it is so internally powerful that, that the capillaries of the, of the blood uh, system start opening up to such a degree that, that they open up into the sweat glands and, and the two mix so that what comes out of the pores is blood, salty, bitter blood. But it's moments before you die. Because once your, your, your salty tears have gone into your bloodstream, it is both non-sterile and not healthy. And the, the body begins to break down, the breathing stops, the heart slows, and the brain grinds to a halt. At this point, Luke's gospel tells us that God sent a ministering angel to comfort him, to give strength to him. We need to realize that, that the wrath of God is not just enough to kill Jesus when he starts pouring it out. For Jesus, just considering the wrath of God is enough to kill him. Just rightly thinking about the weight of sin was enough to end his human life, break his body, destroy his soul through sorrow and grief. God had to strengthen him with an angel. Before God ever laid his strokes upon his back, Jesus was already dying in his human frame. And we can see that the reason... For this, his, his great agonizing over the true sinfulness of sin is because he considered the world's sin like nobody ever had before. Jesus was full, and, uh, uh, was full of true human emotions. When Jesus became a human being, he did not become a, a human body with a divine spirit on the inside of him, like some kind of puppet. He didn't become like the Eutychians used to teach that, that a little bit of the God and a little bit of the man sort of came together and created a superman called the God-man. And he was better than humans. He was lower than God. And that's why he could do all that he did. No, we believe in what is called the hypostatic union, a theological phrase that you can go and look up. You can go and read the early creeds of the church. And what it teaches us is that Jesus is both fully and truly God. He did not and could not lose any of his divine status or nature or essence because that is what it means to be God. Impassable, immutable, meaning emotions don't change you. Nothing can change you when you're God. And yet he so truly joined himself to a human nature that that human nature could undergo change through growth, through, through bleeding, through, through emotions, through grief. Don't think that Jesus had, had such a, a stoic uh, spirituality that no emotion could ever just get the better of him and bring him down. It happened. Never sinfully, but still in grief, Jesus cried out at the death of his friend Lazarus. And at this moment, just, just trying with his now finite human brain to comprehend the full weight of sin, he couldn't do it. He was, he was fully human in his emotions, in his soul, in his spirit, and in his mind. And therefore, he was able to feel. If you have a, a version of Jesus in your gospel that is this Superman, untouchable uh, by, by the human level, and so he doesn't cry really, you know, it's, it's just an act that he puts on for us. If you have that view, you have a view of Jesus that is less than the gospel. You have a, you have a Jesus that can't save you because he didn't become like you. He died for people that don't really feel sin. He died for people that don't really get overcome with emotion. That's not you. Jesus came in and assumed to himself exactly what he was going to save. 
people in flesh, in finitude, in weakness, and yet in his case, without sin. Human emotion, though, is not sin. Jesus experienced the full-orbed amount of it. You start seeing here, what, what, as we call back to, you know, James and John, he's left just a few meters away. But do you remember that portion in chapter 10 of Mark's gospel when James and John had said to Jesus, we want to sit with you in your kingdom, left side, right side. Jesus will even give you the chance to choose who sits on which side. Oh, we'd like to be there. We think we'd make great advisors. And Jesus' response to them was, was, first, it's the Father who ordains such things. Secondly, you will get some level of glory in the kingdom. That, that's coming. But, but to have that throne takes what I'm going through. Jesus says, you don't even know what you're asking. Can you be baptized, that is immersed, thrown under what I am going to be baptized with? Can you drink the cup that I am going to drink? And they foolishly said, yeah, I reckon we we can give it a crack. We'll be fine. That's cool. We'll do it. Whatever you got for us. Well, here's Jesus praying in the agony of his soul, being immersed into that baptism. That will kill him just by thinking about it. And, and drinking the cup soon on the cross of God's wrath that he was talking about. And they are so far from comprehending that that they are sleeping. No, none of us, not even Jesus' best disciples, could ever be baptized with the baptism that Jesus was baptized with. He was baptized under law so that we can be baptized into a fulfilled law and the grace of God. He was baptized into a horrible, agonizing, graceless death so that we can be baptized into a gracious death, into a forgiven death, into a a representative death so you don't even actually have to die to die to the law and be alive to the Lord Jesus Christ. They did not understand what he was going through, and it was all-encompassing. And yet, even though we've we've sort of made this point that that Jesus was, was fully human, fully and truly human, so that he was feeling in his emotions... The sorts of emotions that any human would feel if you were looking down the abyss of the world's sin and staring down the barrel of an infinite God's holy wrath. Whatever you would feel at that moment, and we get some clues in Scripture, mostly people just drop dead. But but however you would feel in that moment, were you to stay alive and, and comprehend it all, Jesus was feeling that. He wasn't floating above the ground without these severe emotions. And yet, he was experiencing it more than we could ever experience it with more severe and clear emotions and dread and sorrow because he was without sin. You may think that, that, that Jesus is like us in many ways, but he doesn't know what it's like to, to really feel and, and know guilt and sin. This whole, this whole tale today is reminding us that that's wrong. Jesus knows not just what it's like to be guilty as much as you. He knows the full weight and horrors of sin infinitely more than each one of us. Because even in the moments, even in the moments of our greatest repentance, when we're praying and we're reading the Bible and we're in Psalm 51 or or we're reading through the law and we're getting a comprehension of the sinfulness of sin and we're bringing our heart to God for transformation and forgiveness. Even in those moments, sin itself is masking the true horrors of itself. We, We see, as Paul says, as ones in a foggy mirror with bad lighting. 
That's how we see sin. That's how we see God's holiness. Even in our best moments, Thomas Watson said, even in my greatest prayers of repentance, there is enough sin to drown the whole world. Jesus Jesus is in that moment considering sin without the foggying, self-deception, self-preservation, self-confidence and pride that we think about our sin with. Jesus was in that moment seeing sin, the clearest that sin has ever been comprehended by a human being. He's seeing it exactly as it is, and it is destroying his soul. Jesus is the perfect man. He's a true man, but he was the perfect man. So, so, so of course, we have to start asking the question why, why we don't think more like this. Why aren't we in continual anguish over our sins? It's, it's because we don't even try we don't even try to preach sin like the Bible really talks about it. We'll, we'll stand up and we'll have a real fun service and we'll put on all sorts of attractive things to get people in the church and free meals and great giveaways and all of that. And you come in here and you feel great and we'll just talk about mistakes that you've made and then we'll just reference the fact that you probably haven't lived up to your full potential and don't you realize that God wants to bless you more than you've received and your sin is just the fact that you're not saying yes to more blessings and, and we all do silly things sometimes, but gee, God is just so gracious, and, and can I get an amen, and, and we'll send around the bucket for some giving, something like that. That's, what, that's how we think of sin. Now, I know that's quite a caricature. That's not what we do here at Hope, but we're not far off the way that those people think about sin if we don't have chapters, seasons, periods, days in our life when we afflict our soul with the reality of sin. Not the reality of your own guilt, because in Jesus Christ, you are guiltless. And yet, until you're resurrected, you're still sinful. We still need to spend time looking at the reality of ourselves as much as we can, always knowing that this is an infinitely long path. I'll never get to the end where I say, I fully understand the ugliness of my sin. Jesus, though, fully comprehended it, and his perfect body was just about to die before the angel strengthened him. He was sorrowful to death, verse 34 says. It could kill the God man, this consideration of sin. It is so truly ugly in its nature that just considering it could kill the God man before God ever laid his strokes upon him. And even more, as we continue to un unfold what is going on before us here, even more than that, Jesus was God. So he was, he was fully man, experiencing the emotions. He was perfect man, so he was experiencing those emotions in 4K, high definition, and he was the God-man, which means he knows what it is like to be sinned against to an infinite degree. I know we all know what it's like to be sinned against. Maybe, maybe somebody in a relationship with you is unfaithful. Maybe they lie to you. Maybe they betray you. Maybe, maybe people have stolen from you. Maybe people have, have talked horribly behind your back or have, have abused you or have, have done all number of horrible things to you. We know what it is like to be sinned against, that, that horrible sense of, of hurt in that way. But God is the only one, and by extension, God the Son in flesh, is the only person who knows what it is like to be God being sinned against. Because, because when we're sinned against, we're sinned against in ways that we sin against other people in. 
I mean, you know, I've, I've offended you, I've insulted you, I've lied to you or whatever, but, but I've done, uh, uh, you've done that to other people as well. I haven't transgressed your infinite standard of holiness. I've just upset you. But get over it. We're all sinners. Sinners are going to sin and we're all on the same playing field. But God, but God is the only one who knows what it is like to be in himself intrinsically, infinitely holy, never having sinned himself. Even to the sinful creation, he has never done anything unjust. Righteousness and justice is the foundation of his throne and everything that he does. And yet, against his perfect moral law, against his infinite law, what Romans calls a, a glorious standard, against that, every human being, if you consider yourself a victim of sin or the worst sinner that's ever walked in these doors, every one of us is guilty of transgressing God's law, of offending him personally. Sin is always personal with God because every sin is about how, how, how to not sin against him. Every sin is personal and every sin is infinite because there's no such thing as sinning against a God that is not infinite. So here we all stand. Before the, the tribunal of God, every one of us condemned. And that is why Jesus came. But in his coming, he, he stood in that place so that, as we've said, truly human, experiencing the emotional sorrow of the moment. Perfect, though, so he can experience it all in full understanding. And yet he is God. So added to that is the understanding of, of how evil, guilty, horrible, vile sin really is because he is the one who has been sinned against since, Adam, since Adam's first transgression. Jesus is here. Knowing all of this, there is a sense in which he has known it since eternity past, that this would be what he would come and do. But there is a unique sense, which is why he had to become human so that Hebrews can say that he has entered in and knows what it is like to be guilty, knows what it is like to be cut off from God, knows what it is like to be suffering under horrible things. Jesus entered in. And wouldn't you, wouldn't you think, wouldn't you think if he knew it, then he wouldn't have come, then he wouldn't have done, he would have done something differently. He wouldn't have gone to the uh, Olive Garden where Judas is going to betray him. He, he wouldn't have agreed to come to earth. He, he would have done something differently. Maybe he would have taken Satan up at that offer, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. When Satan told him, you don't need to die, you don't need to bleed, you don't need to carry the weight of sin and be condemned under the wrath of God, you just need to worship me. And I have been given all of the kingdoms of the earth. Adam lost them. I have tyranny and reign and sovereignty down here. And he showed him all of the, the realms and powers and kingdoms in, in some kind of celestial vision to the Lord Jesus. He says, don't you want these? Don't you want a crown that has no blood dripping from it? Don't you want a, a crown and a kingdom that does not require the cross and surely Jesus at the beginning of his ministry in the desert? And at the end of his ministry in the garden, that was the most severe temptation. To just be able to escape the wrath of God. And he could have received glory in heaven or glory on earth from Satan if he could receive it without us. And that he was not willing to do. He didn't want the, the glory, the, the kingdom, if it was without the people that had been eternally given to him by his father. 
A husband won't, won't take up a, 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 an offer of a beachside mansion as long as he leaves his children and wife in the gutter. Not a true husband. Neither will Jesus, the eternity's greatest husband, heaven's great bridegroom. He would never receive a kingdom or glory, a throne or a palace without his people that had been given to him that he loved with an eternal love. You and me, who by faith, have entered into forgiveness because of what he did. Jesus came, he took on all of this, <coughs> and we see as we go into uh, further, the wrestle that Jesus experienced in this whole ordeal and the wrestle that the disciples dealt with. Look at verse 37. After agonizing in prayer, sweating great drops of blood, weeping and crying out to God, he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went and prayed, saying the same thing. And he came to them and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. They'd eaten a big meal. They had had some wine. They had gone on a, a big hike. And now they were under the moonlight and sitting around maybe a fire, sitting together. And they kept sleeping. And he came a third time and even said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. We see in Jesus' example the, the importance of sin, uh, the importance of prayer in times of trouble as he went to God. The importance of, of praying to God in these, in these moments where we are afflicted by God, it may feel. And yet we're seeing in the disciples this horrible battle that when we know that James says, you're afflicted, we'll pray. Jesus knew that the most of all. Peter says, cast your anxieties unto God because he cares for you. We say, that is genius. And, and Jesus knew it most of all. But here are the disciples. And they represent us. Jesus is the great example. The disciples are the ugly reality. That, that, that Galatians 5 tells us that, that inside every true Christian, right? True, not a false Christian, true Christian. Take, take comfort at this. In every true Christian, there is a war going on constantly between the flesh and the spirit. And in God's sovereignty, he so designed the Christian life that it would be a lifelong process of the, the desires of the spirit being entirely opposite to the desires of our sinful flesh, God leaves us with some measure of our sinful flesh that is slowly weakened through our life and sanctification. He left that with us so that we must fight to progress in the Christian life. By God's own design, there is no drifting towards godliness, holiness, productivity, and, and Christ-likeness. None whatsoever. Every meter that we gain is uphill, is upstream, is across the grain of our own body. This is the great wrestle that, that flesh has against spirit, that Romans even talks about. I, I, I seem to, to know what is good. I desire what is good. But both before my conversion and Romans 8 will tell us after my conversion, I'm, I'm, I'm conflicted. I want to do good. I also want to do bad. Oh, I, I want to be the world's greatest prayer to see kingdoms rise and fall and, and, and droughts come and go, like in the example of Elijah. I want to see the church built by my prayers I also really want to see the latest season. I also really want to have my own hobbies and, and I like to sleep. I, have, I bought a weighted blanket. That's a lot more cozy and comforting than praying on my knees. 
We have both of these desires in us. The mark of the true Christian is not that those desires are absent, but that those desires are fought against. J.C. Ryle tells us that, that Jesus told them, watch and pray. You need both or, you, or we don't have Christian maturity. We need to be watching and praying. If we're watching and we're aware of our sin and we know how, how evil we might be and we're aware that our flesh will overcome us, if we're watching, you've got a great theology of sin, you know exactly what all of your, your, your tells are, your triggers, your, 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 your behaviors and your, your things that you feel addicted to. You know all of them. You have a great therapeutic theological knowledge of sin, but you don't pray, then you're just overcome with self-confidence. You know the enemy pretty well, and you don't pray to God for the help you need. But if we turn it back the other way, if we don't have watchfulness and we just have prayer, J.C. Ryle calls that fanaticism. Enthusiasm, empty enthusiasm. Like, like go to all of your all night, early morning, all day, fasting prayer meetings that you want, put on loud music, maybe even smoke machine, go to the mountain, go on prayer walks, do what you wish. If you are not watching against sin, then your prayer is just fleshly sin. Your prayer is just some kind of fanaticism, getting into the spirit or trying to, trying to get baptized with, with some kind of emotional overcome that does not come because you are still in a lack of watchfulness for your sin. We need both. Jesus tells us to be watchful, know your sin, and pray because there is ways out of it. There really was a way that they could have stayed awake and not slept while the Messiah, Son of God and Son of Man was there agonizing over the sacrifice he was about to make. They could have prayed with him. They could have been so stirred in prayer that they went with him and prayed with him. God didn't need to send an angel. He could have, he could have healed them through the prayers of the disciples, but they missed out on all of that. They did not watch. They did not pray. But we must keep ourselves to watch and pray. To watch and pray. But the disciples are not the only example of human conflict in prayer. We even see it in Jesus. Now, now let's not go too far here. Let's not say Jesus also was being tempted by his flesh. Jesus also had inner sinfulness that was making prayer difficult. It wasn't that. This is, this is sort of just showing us how, how difficult the, the command that, that Paul gives us, always be praying, that Jesus gave us, it gives us, when he says, always pray and never give up, we just need to realize how, how hard that's going to be. Because not only is it our sin, like the disciples are showing us, our, our flesh is too strong, our body is weak, even Jesus is struggling. Not so much because of the inner warfare of sin and holiness, but because of the reality of the distinction between the creator and God. Jesus at this moment has a created body. He's an uncreated being in his essence. He is divine God and person. And yet in his body, he's in a created, finite body. And in that body is the inability to feel all that God feels in his fullness and his nature. So here's Jesus. Though he is God, he is still feeling with everything in him, I don't want to die. Uh, I don't want to, not just death. When I mean, Calvin has this great moment of his commentaries on this section, he says, he is not fearing death because it is a difficult passage out of this world into the eternal life. No, no, that's not Jesus' fear. The, the Son of God is not fearing the fact that he has to die. The Son of God in flesh is fearing the tribunal of God. It's not just the death, it's the dying. It's the punishment. Jesus, in his human nature, 
cannot be happy about that. There's some ways that we can think that Jesus submitted himself to this life that was entirely voluntary. That's true. But we should not think that everything he underwent was voluntary in the sense that that's what he wanted to do that day. The key marker of Jesus, the key reason he was able to fulfill the gospel, the eternal covenant between father and son, was because he was submitted to the father's will. That is the marker of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why did he do anything that he did? Ultimately, he was in submission to the Father's will. He's right here. And he gives us this tremendous example. Three hours he went. One hour at a time, he went and he prayed and he agonized and he even asked. The God-man, the perfect Jesus Christ, asked the Father, is there another way? Is there any way we can redeem these sinners without me going through what I have to go through? He, he, was so, he was so at the limits of his human nature. He just couldn't be honest to God and say, bring it on. He was agonized. This was the moment of his greatest temptation. This was the devil's final chance. If he could get him to turn around at this point to do what he wanted to do, which was self-preserve and live, then the cross would be avoided and human sin would remain over the human race. But Jesus continued in prayer. And I want to I show that just as it is the key marker of Jesus' life was submission to the Father, so also it is the key marker of Christ-likeness. You know, there's, there's lots of things we'll read in Scripture. We're going through the New Testament. It'll be love of the brothers, sexual morality, sharing the gospel, loving the word, knowing your doctrine, serving in the church. There's all these things that, that we must be pursuing and that we might feel every time we look at them, I'm not that good. I'm not at the level I ought to be. Uh, am I a Christian at all? There's, there's all these things that the standards can sometimes condemn us. I want to ask if you have this. If in your heart, even though you can notice, as, as we've been saying today, you can notice a hundred different conflicting desires within you, all the, the different wants and wills and desires that you want to walk in, but you know you shouldn't. Is there ultimately a submission of your heart to God's will, whatever it be? Here's Jesus praying. I don't want to go through this. Lord, please pass this cup of your wrath away from me. Give me the cup of blessing. Let me do something other than this to procure their salvation. Yet, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Ultimately, do you see this, not bleeding out and flowing out of every decision you ever make, but in the, in the heart of hearts, this is what you want. You know, God may, God, may, God may give me a sickness tomorrow, and I don't want that, but his will, not my will. He may, he may, he may let my, my marriage that I'm trying to save end ugly. I don't want that, but his will, not my will, be done. I want my sick child to continue on into health and healing and long life. I want that. But if God would not will it, may his will and not my will be done. I want my child, my friend, my father to be saved from eternal hell. And yet not my will, but your will be done. This is the ultimate marker. Do you see this anywhere in your heart where you may know you've got a, a hundred distractions, a hundred wills of the flesh, a hundred wants that you know are wrong, and yet you are willing to say to God, if nothing else, please, Father, whatever your will in my life, let it be done. That is a tremendous sign of a converted soul.
It is, it is precisely that that the devil would never say. No matter what, never may he ever, ever submit to God's will. He cannot do it, Romans 8 says. The heart that is still bound by sin and unconverted cannot submit to God's will. But Jesus gives us this great example. And not just a great example. Like we should read this and we should pray often, God, make me like Christ in this way. Here's our example. But it's just dead religion to tell you Jesus came and gave the best advice and lived the best example. So on your horse, try and chase him. Try and follow him. Try and walk like he walked. That's, that's the Christian teaching? No, no, that's dead religion. Just telling you to follow a great example is all of the other world religions. What we have in Jesus, as he goes forward and prays in the way the disciples couldn't, as he fulfills a submission to the Father's will in a way that we couldn't, we don't just see a better example, which we're still powerless to follow, we see good news. We see a hope that where no man could go because everyone else was sinful with their own sin, where no one would go because no one would desire such submission, no one would live in such obedience, where no one would be allowed to go because God had chosen nobody else but Jesus. Into that place Jesus went. In our place, condemned he stood bearing all of our sin, taking the shame, taking the evil, the guilt, feeling the full weight of it, and then being punished under God's anger to fulfill all of the justice, to fulfill all of the law for us. He's not just a great example. He's not calling you to do that. He's not calling you to follow him and die under the wrath of God. He's calling you to believe that he has already done it and then rose triumphantly so that you can be forgiven. The, the, the example of Jesus is one thing. The good news of Jesus is another. In one hand, I'm saying, be like Jesus. On the other hand, I'm saying, you'll never be like Jesus. You don't need to be like Jesus in this, that he died for you so that you can live. He lived under law so that you can live under grace. He died and rose and is now living, sitting, praying at the Father's right hand, ruling and reigning to give forgiveness and grace and eternal life to anybody that sees what Jesus did in his earthly life and trusts that for their eternal salvation. There is salvation in no other name, precisely because God has given no other person or name to the earth by which humankind can be saved. Your one hope is Jesus Christ, but in him is infinite hope. Believe today you will be saved. Let's pray. Father God, we realize in what Mark has written here for us, we realize that we do not agonize. We do not agonize over our sin because we have light thoughts of sin. We have, we have such pithy, such, such easy, easygoing simple thoughts of sin because we're trying to protect our own emotions, trying to preserve our own heart and reputation and thought of ourselves. But God, I pray this morning that, that there, there are definitely people in here who are not saved, who are still on the road to condemnation and hell. We pray, Lord God, that you would give to them the agonizing reality that they are more than a mistake maker. They're more than somebody who's slipped up a few times. They are rebels in a war against God. They are, they are criminals against the law of God. They are defilers of the holiness of God. They are offenders of the relationship that they have with God. They are breakers of the covenant. They are sinners. 
Every single person that has ever sinned, the Bible calls a sinner, a state of being condemned. Father God, we pray that you would give to them the open eyes to see the ugly reality of their own sin. And Father, we pray that you would then give them the eyes of faith, the eyes of faith that would see Jesus as the only solution to their sin. And Father God, for the rest of us, we pray, we pray that we would grow in our ability to understand how ugly our sin is so that we would be repulsed by it, not simply scared of the consequences, not simply trying to avoid bad things happening to us, but trying to avoid the offense to our loving God and Savior. We do not want to entertain and enjoy that which killed our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father God, I, I pray that, that we, would, we would more greatly think of our sins so that we can more greatly walk in holiness, but above everything, if we get one thing today, may we more greatly esteem the Lord Jesus Christ. Because in him is the picture of both, the, the holiness of God, the lostness and hopelessness of sinful man, and the solution of hope through grace that was poured out on the cross. Father God, we thank you that you were, you were pleased to give your wrath to Jesus and your love to us. We thank you that you were pleased to raise him back up and fill him with blessing and eternal life and a, and a kingdom. And we thank you that you are filling that kingdom. You are filling that kingdom with people who believe on the blood atonement of Jesus Christ. May you grow that kingdom today by saving souls. It is in the name of our loving, praying Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we pray all of these things. And everybody said, Amen.